world, and welcome to another fun, fun episode of Here's a Guy. Um, I'm Alex, coming to you from St. Louis. I'm joined by my usual co-hosts, the first of which is my older brother, Cody, coming to us from Illinois. Cody, what's up? Oh, not a whole lot going on in my uh, my neck of the woods. I've uh, just been enjoying this beautiful weather. I mentioned been doing a lot of high school baseball, so the, uh, the weather has been uh, greatly appreciated, um, except for that one game last week where uh, they pushed it back later because it was raining and cold and we had to wait for a storm system to get out of the way. That was pretty fucking miserable. But uh, yeah, otherwise, uh, just in enjoying, I, I love spring. We've talked about this before. I think spring is the king of the seasons myself. I know Alex is a fall guy, but. Uh, yeah, October, the king of months, fall in my guy opinion. Um, I was going to say, Alex is often my fall guy as well. Yeah. Spring has its highs, uh, but, oh, the lows are so, so low. Um, you know, and, and in that sense, you could say the same about our show. Um, Jack John <laughs> is also joining us from Indianapolis. Jack John, how's it going in your world? Speaking of low lows, Jack John, uh, I'm, I'm actually pissed off about the weather. Um, I had to do yard work for the first time this year, and I usually love yard work. You know, uh, I had to mow the lawn in 30-degree weather, uh, uh, a beanie on, a hoodie on, pants, and then it was 60 degrees two days later. I'm pissed. Yeah, I, I had to do to, my... You uh, really embraced the whole bad thing. Oh, absolutely. I actually, legitimately, even before uh, little Jack John Jr., 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 Jr. was born, I love doing that work. It's, there, there's nothing better than fresh cut grass. You went, you, went well, you went dad mode well before you were a dad. Oh, that. yeah. I've embraced uh, cargo shorts... Uh, thigh high socks and New Balances way earlier in my life than I should have, and rightfully so. <laughs> well, yeah, spring sure has sprung, and uh, we're we're coming off of um we're we're gonna try to not have a hangover, uh, so to speak, for this episode. Last last episode, we we may have got a little bit indulgent. <laughs> um, we understand that, so um. This this week we're a little more clear-headed, I think. Um <laughs> and uh the good news is that we didn't attempt to do this last week uh, uh when we were in that condition. But as promised, uh if you'll recall March Hagness uh tournament on Twitter ended a couple weeks ago and the the grand prize for the winner of March Hagness was that we would do tribute poems in their honor. Of course after a a an epic battle for the championship after the hard pot road. The Wizard of New Zealand from back in episode 18, Chicken Friends, uh, hailed victorious. And as such, we must now meet our obligation um, to give our tribute poems to the wizard. Have, have you both prepared poems for this? I have. I have. Well, that's good news. I didn't really know what we were going to do if you said no. So... <laughs> We would probably have to restart the episode. So, um, yeah, we we have, right we write poems and then yeah we we don't even phone it in quite that much usually. Yeah, Alex's new intro. Hello and welcome to fifteen minutes later. <laughs> I'm your host, Alex. <laughs> so, for those who 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 don't remember. Uh, back in episode 18, uh, this was one of my topics. I discussed the Wizard of New Zealand. Um, a guy who, um, well, a guy. That's that's probably the best way to sum it up. But um, he was a guy who was originally from Australia, moved to New Zealand, 
um, very much into kind of like the weirdo counterculture college art scene, declared himself a work of art, and eventually started this bit where he would go to the the town square in Christchurch, New Zealand, um, and just giving speeches as if he were a wizard. And, you know, you would think that that um, this would get him, you know, taken to the outskirts of town and abandoned. Instead, people in New Zealand have a very odd sense of humor. And so um, he was given an official first local government title and then federal government title and was declared the official wizard of New Zealand, received a government salary for many years until he just retired not that long ago um, and had many, many, many wacky antics in between. <clears throat> Um, oh man, he's never so going to get to see the outskirts of town. <laughs> so we've now prepared a, a poetry that we hope to honor this man with. Um, and if if you two are okay with it, I would like to go first. Let's uh, yeah, let's hear it. Here is my ode to the wizard. <clears throat> Silence, everyone, please. There once was a sorcerer who achieved great fame. The Wizard of New Zealand was this fellow's name. You'd think such a title would bring shame as he aged. Instead came recognition and a government wage. <laughs> he hatched from eggs, he steered a canoe. To promote his website, down the mountain he flew. He spread joy to the Kiwis, from high and from low, and made me go insane researching for the show. <laughs> he, he doesn't cast literal spells like most wizards do, but to say there's no magic is simply untrue. The magic comes not in how he chants or he flies. The magic's in the sparkling of each New Zealander's eyes. So enjoy your retirement, our fine wizard friend. And hopefully no one burns your house down again. <laughs> That's my ode to the wizard. Uh, poem you snaps like all around. That's, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if Cody and I both did that. Your, your internet is, yeah. is even worse than usual. So I, I just, I did for myself just to, you know. Yeah. Kudos. Um, Cody, uh, I think, I think let's have you go second. Um, okay. do you have an ode to the, to the wizard that you'd like to present? I certainly do. <clears throat> Silence, everyone. For all who enjoy doing strange, goofy things, bow down, fellow weirdos, because this is your king. In a place called New Zealand, we pick up the action. It's not known for much, mostly just Peter Jackson. There lived a man with a vision his own. He started a movement and watched as it's grown. His idea was simple, an obvious one. Don't take life so serious, live for the fun. Life's supposed to be random, silly, and weird. There's no need to dwell on the things that you fear. The other folks thought something was wrong in his head. You ought to have heard all the things that they said. Was he kicked by a horse? Did he suffer a fall? Or maybe his brain was two sizes too small. Is this guy for real? Is he actually nuts? Or does he just enjoy being a pain in our butts? His haters got no help from their stalwart prime minister, who knew the man's motives were quite far from sinister. The minister thought, I like this a lot, and thought of the money that tourism brought. There's plenty of people that think this guy's cool. They think that there's depths to his playing the fool. We'll give him a title he can have for his own. The Wizard of New Zealand is how he'll be known. He held pretend battles and protested war, and heckled Ray Comfort, which I like even more. For years now, the wizard has held his position, trying to fulfill his life's only mission. Reminding the people to not be so dour, from lemons make lemonade, pull sweet from the sour. 
So we say to the wizard in his castle on high, keep up the good work. You're our kind of guy. Beautiful. Beautiful. Very, more nice. Very nice. That's it. You know, you know what I like is that unlike most topics on the show who are either like dead or horrible, um, there's a chance that if we sent these to the wizard, he might actually enjoy them. Yeah. <laughs> so far, anyway. Jackson that. hasn't gone yet, so we'll see. <laughs> The risk of putting my foot in my mouth yet again. Um, all right. Well, well, that's uh, two poems down, and I believe that that leaves us with Jack John. Did you prepare an ode to the wizard? Oh, I did. All right. Well, go ahead and hit us with it, Jack John. Uh, this is my poem, simply titled "The Wizard." The episode had started normal enough. Talks of bobbleheads, Hitler, and Washington football stuff. What a lead! Surely it won't be topped. Alex downed his wine, and his smile had stopped. What the fuck is any of this? This wizard is something else. Alex told us while on his buzz of a man whose body just was, a living work of art and a party starting, the ladder-climbing ladder hero with a flair for spellcasting. But he didn't shatter the glass ceiling from that ladder. You'll find him at your local mixer, truly drinking his own elixir. What the fuck is any of this? This wizard is something else. Anna Sterla and her fruit ever so tart. She slipped before the battle could even start. But the wizard predicted this blowout when he said that women cause wars. A quick spell and Anna split. Never to be amongst the stars. What the fuck is any of this? This wizard is something else. The, the nuclear boy scout was next. A bright young mind on the scene. But the wizard was ever keen. And the boy's mother had not seen. The troubles the wizard sure would bring. He'd take the cathedral over his mother's abode. The nuclear boy scout fumbled the payload. What the fuck is any of this? This wizard is something else. Corporal Wojtek was next, and it bears repeating. The fan favorite fought hard. The fans ever cheering. But with the flip of a coin, Wojtek was sent back to the night. With not his army in sight. A bear brings fear. But the wizard would never fright. What the fuck is any of this? This wizard is something else. Franz flew high, but maybe too far in the sky. With a failed cord, his stock had dropped. The wizard would not be stopped, and Franz had stopped. The crowd quickly learned more. A simple parachute from the wizard proved well enough ever before. What the fuck is any of this? This wizard is something else. Diogenes asked the question, for what is a man? The wizard replied without a second thought, less than I am. A man is no match for a wizard, and from atop his ladder, he said over the scoundrel, what the fuck is any of this? This wizard is something else. The wizard last met Giuseppe, the wily, miserable man with a plan to shoot from the stands. A hero of lore who stood so tall in myth, but myths are deceiving, as our looks from a tower what looked to be a sure sweep was met in the final hour by a spell cast with nothing more than unleashed unlimited power. A true guy for the ages. What the fuck is any of this? Who the fuck can stop any of this? This wizard beat everyone else. My goodness, Jack John, that was really something. Yeah, again, not being picked up. I had a lot of fun going back so through the what I love about that is that what I like 
think about that. Alex and went very storybooks that I've seen. Stand with it. But I like had all of our poetry bases covered. We had Doctor and Kessie. I was going to say, Jack John, you're you're you're. You're a regular James Joyce, and I mean that in two ways. One, that you're very good at writing long-form poetry, and two, that you also have a fart fetish. No. <laughs> I told you, that's not for air. Documented well, fetish. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Um, and hopefully you all enjoyed these these odes to the wizard. It made it a lot easier that the wizard was uh, confusing but likable. Yeah. Had, had Giuseppe been the champion, this would have been pretty tough. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, that, had Giuseppe won this long form poem definitely would have been a uh, three lined haiku yeah because I mean yeah I mean that's the size of poem that is that is appropriate <laughs> for Giuseppe yeah. I think I could have written like a Beowulf length epic poem about Giuseppe probably <laughs> not that I would have but I think I could do it <laughs> I'd hate myself afterwards but it's done yeah, I would seriously reconsider what I'm doing with my life, but it um, could be done. So with that out of the way, um, there was actually one other thing I wanted to ask about. Uh, totally forgot. Jack John, I, I think I saw, did you watch, and this is following up on last week, did you watch Cartoon All-Stars to the Rescue yourself? I did. I had a morbid curiosity and... I started watching it while I was working, just like something in the background. And then I stopped working and entirely watched it. And my God, you guys painted a picture that like is exactly what that was. I was going to say, what do, do you think our, our assessments were accurate? I. Did we I do just, it justice? I, I knew it was coming and I was still just in awe at just the. The lunacy of it all, I think is just the <laughs> best way to put it. Again, like the, the the chipmunks just blatantly talking about drugs, just <clears throat> even knowing it was coming, still just completely threw me off guard. Um, I, I know you did send me a Snapchat when you got to the part about the the secret stash box. I mean, <laughs> were our assessments corrected? That did you have any better idea than we did about what any of that was supposed to be? I I almost want to say like this is what white people in the 80s thought crack rocks looked like like it looked like there should have been crack rocks in there but like just amorphous white blobs instead yeah. of actual crack rocks yeah was that but, just a big ass bag of cocaine that was never <laughs> referenced throughout the rest of the movie at all it, it can't be because as we discussed like the part of the whole point of it one of the 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 several very antiquated offensive themes of the 80s and 90s about drug use was this whole gateway drug concept it's why like the the point was that at this point, troubled teen Michael was only smoking pot, but he was right on the verge of doing even worse. And so this is all supposed to be like weed paraphernalia. Yeah. Well, didn't and again your your description was perfect. Art ho. Didn't she say let's go get crack? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Casually <laughs> asked if they could go buy some crack. And that was yeah. after the kid at the arcade pulled out a the kid at the arcade pulled out a handful of meth. Yeah. So um, just yeah, one where, of the, are the car- like- where are the cartoons for these kids? Yeah, <laughs> like it, it seems like there are uh, there are others that need their attention, perhaps a little bit more. But now they're still stuck on Michael. Uh, uh, those- it's, it's fine. Droopy's going to be dealing with them. Yeah, uh, no, those kids, <laughs> those kids get Ugandan knuckles. 
<laughs> That's quite the reference. Wow. Um, well, well they, uh, they had cartoon singers. That was just a, a bender for me. He just made everything worse. <laughs> Instead of do a flip, it's do a hit. <laughs> All right. Well, with with all that being said, um, I was going to mention we did get a listener email this week. Um, with all our focus on the poems, don't have time to get to it. But for the listeners who sent us that, we will we will address that next week. So apologies. And if any of the rest of you want to send us a listener email for next week to discuss as well, since we're going to be doing some of that, uh, shoot us an email at here's a mailbox at gmail dot com. All right. Well, let's uh, go ahead and, and get to the real reason why we're here, and that's to talk about some guys. Um, Jack John, could you help me out, please? Uh, yeah, I think I remember it. It's, uh, the guys. Terrific. Terrific. Uh, I believe Cody's up first this week. Cody, who's yes. your guy? So we've got, uh, uh, kind of one of these spiritual sequels to a previous topic, um, to one of my, my previous, uh, guys, Charles Domery. Uh, if you remember, Domery was a Polish soldier who ate incredible quantities of food, settling for non-food items when nothing else was available. Tonight's guy is yeah, a what, similar character, but a much less innocuous version of that. Yeah, what episode was that? That was a really early episode. I think, I think that was like 16. Or wait, no, that was uh, that might have been episode 10, because I remember it was an episode that Mitch was on. Uh, you're correct. Episode 10, Moth in the City, featuring Mitch. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, th- this is a similar guy, but uh, with an a even weirder twist. Uh, this guy is known as, and this is a hard name to pronounce. I've seen it pronounced multiple different ways. We're going to go with Tarar. T-A-R-R-A-R-E. Tarar. And you know what? If you're wrong, I mean, it's French. Who cares? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so Tarar was born in France near Lyon in the early 1770s. This is another one of those guys where we don't have an exact date of birth. Uh, we don't even have a real name. We don't uh, even know if Tarar was his real name or a nickname, what his surname might have been, or if that was his surname. We have no clue. Um, even as a child, Tarar's appetite was on full display. As a teenager, he was said to be able to eat a quarter of a young bull weighing as much as Tarar himself in a single day. Holy moly. What? Which... I mean, if you've ever seen a teenage boy eat after football practice, you'll know that's not totally far-fetched. Oh, you know what? With the word, I used to... So the first uh, few years that I was in college, my roommate was a swimmer. And after, like, big swim meets, I remember there was one in particular, like, a conference swim meet. He got back the next day, and he walked in, he set his stuff down, he's like, okay, can you drive me to Wendy's? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, man, I'll drive you to Wendy's. And I, I've never seen a man eat so much Wendy's in one sitting <laughs> as, as my roommate Tom did in that instance. When, I when, you said, when you said he ate a quarter of a bowl, I like to imagine he didn't even cook it. He just ate it live. <laughs> like He's just eating the hoof like, mm, it's delicious. Well, I mean, uh, that's not too terribly far off from some things we're going to see later on. Mm. Um his parents at this point had no choice but to kick him out to fend for himself. They just, they couldn't afford to feed him anymore. He was starting also, to give them uh, some suspicious looks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and also, again, this is 18th century France. Um, you know, they, that's just kind of what happened to people. <laughs> right. Like a 50-50 so, chance you get abandoned. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So this put Tarar in a pretty tenuous situation. After all, you are the world's hungriest, hungriest hippo, and now you have no way to support yourself. So, Tarar joined up with a band of thieves and prostitutes, stealing and begging to get by. We're going to see that Tarar really didn't have a ton of scruples, which I guess is understandable when you've got to get a hold of massive amounts of food with no real skills whatsoever. Sure. Um, soon he realized that he could make his appetite work in his favor and began performing his feats of gastric magic professionally as an opening act for a traveling snake oil salesman and confidence trickster to support himself. Can this is back when ComEd had hell. opening acts. Can you imagine the, the existential hell if this guy was a picky eater? <laughs> yeah. he, just, he just has an entire bin full of chicken nuggies. Well, oh you actually, actually, that sounds really nice. Yeah, you need not worry about that. Um, in addition to huge quantities of food, Tarar would also eat non-food objects like stones, corks, and live animals. Okay. Uh, Go ahead, Jack. I, I, I don't want to be nitpicky, but even if they're still alive, livestock is still food? Maybe I, I'm trying. To, I'm trying to be on his side here. I'm trying to be on his side. Right animals now are not food. I I feel fairly <laughs> confident in saying that. Uh, I did not think that was a controversial opinion, but apparently I have to put my foot down on this. I, I believe, and and pun aside, we're we're splitting hairs at that point. Uh, that's terrible. That's, <laughs> yeah. If, Look, if I had specifically said rabbits, I would have given yeah, you a point yeah, for that, but I, I didn't even specify that. I mean, I'm sure it's a... You start at rabbits, you work your way rabbits, up the Rabbits, cats, stuff like that, yeah. yeah. So, another favorite trick is going to be was... after our show. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we're not the ones doing this, okay? <laughs> I have never eaten a live animal in my life, at least not on purpose. Might have been a bug or two that slipped through the cracks, but... Oh, sure. Um, another favorite trick of his was eating multiple large baskets of apples one after another. Just housing like bushel baskets full of apples. Okay, so he's healthy at least. Yeah. <laughs> well, after uh, he ate a bunch of rocks, yeah. Well, look, <laughs> a balanced diet's important. <laughs> rocks are in the food pyramid somewhere. Yeah, well, salt's a rock. Yeah. You are really stretching the logic here, but okay. <laughs> I don't. I don't I, know I'm why we're trying so hard to defend him. <laughs> I'm a little concerned with how far out of your way you guys are going to see things from his point of view. Look, your stretching the logic is like the subtitle for this whole fucking show. That's true. Cody, so, this is, a bad, is this a bad time to mention Jack and I have a side project we've been working on? <laughs> <laughs> so, one might assume that someone with Tarar's bizarre physiology is probably pretty interesting to look at. Uh, and you would be correct. Despite his ravenous appetite, Tarar was a very slim build, weighing just 100 pounds at age 17. The skin of his abdomen was so loose when he hadn't eaten that he could, like, fold it over his hand. Jesus. When he had eaten, his gut would swell up and distend like a balloon. He was also said to have had a gigantic mouth able to fit up to 12 eggs in his cheeks at one time. A regular cool hand Jean-Luc. Um, he was constantly hot to okay. the touch. Pretty good. I mean, if you got a better one, I'd love to hear it. Um, <laughs> he was constantly hot to the touch and sweated profusely, leading him to smell terrible, even by the standards of 18th century France. 
That's that's rough. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty bad. That's like you have to be a rancid pile of shit, I think, in order to to smell bad enough that the French in the 18th century would even notice it. You have to be the um, inside of an ass. Yeah. <laughs> Which conveniently he ate an hour ago. <laughs> so he's a zoomer. <laughs> After eating, his eyes became bloodshot and a visible steam or vapor would rise from his body. This guy sounds like a goddamn monster in a movie. Like yeah. he does. He's he just he's sounds like he's horrifying to be around. It's like it's like something out of Kafka. So in 1788, Terrar moved to Paris to work as a street performer. This really shows the duality of the French. Here you have the world's <laughs> most romantic city, all these great landmarks, beautiful sights, uh, this gorgeous river, this fantastic food. Oh, and also on the street corner, here's some smelly lunatic eating a live cat. <laughs> That's well, France you know, in a nutshell. It, in fairness, you and I are French, so this is yeah. this is a huge surprise that that this is kind of what our sensibilities are. You know, mm -hmm. if if I saw this guy, I'd throw him a franc or two. Like I get it. Like you do and what you got. It. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My money. Oh no. <laughs> As one might expect, this lifestyle occasionally come back to bite him. Pun very much intended. He was hospitalized for what they believed to be uh, an intestinal instruction. No instruction, pardon me. Yeah, doctors just like, like yeah, the, it seems... the, the intestinal instruction is don't ever do this. <laughs> yeah. uh, he could he have used some took... intestinal instruction. He promptly took his like discharge papers and then ate them. <laughs> so the doctor's just like, yes, it seems that something is blocking your small intestine. It's a Horse. There is a horse in here. Uh, you have a horse stuck inside of you. Uh, I can Monsieur, uh, monsieur you, you have a frog in your throat. Oh, no, I'm speaking fine. No, no, you have a literal frog in your throat. And by that, I mean a French person. <laughs> yeah. This, this is some good vaudeville we're doing here. <laughs> this is really... A very, a very sticky segment. Yeah. Just goes to show that while we may be funny, we are in no way original, and we are okay with that. <laughs> yeah, um, that's fine. They, I guess uh, they, influence. <laughs> they treated him with powerful laxatives, which must have been interesting when those met all of those corks inside him. Mm, oh, um, boy. Also, based on the way this guy ate, just the results of this must have been quite something. Like, I... <laughs> I imagine he swallowed so many coins at this point that he just becomes a human slot machine, basically. He was able to recover, and he offered to demonstrate his abilities to the doctor by eating his watch and chain. The doctor was not amused and assured Terari that if he did that, the doctor would open him up and retrieve them. <laughs> so, look, I'm not going to wait for you to pass these. I'm taking them. <laughs> In 1792, the War of the First Coalition broke out in France, and Terrar joined the army. I have no idea why. Because uh, he can eat bullets. Well, he must have done something, because he couldn't, of course, sustain himself on military rations, <laughs> and took to uh, doing odd jobs around the camp for his fellow soldiers in exchange for uh, additional food. He also foraged through the camp's garbage, which was a lifelong habit of his. Was just like if there was garbage, he was looking to see if there was anything remotely edible in there. 
none of this was enough, and he was admitted to a military hospital for a case of extreme exhaustion. At the hospital, they gave him quadruple rations, but still, Tarar was insatiable. He ate scraps from the other patients, and even snuck into the apothecary to eat the poultices. The doctors uh, decided to test, uh, or to keep him around and study him. On one occasion, they decided to test his capacity for food by allowing him to have at a meal prepared for 15 laborers. Tarar, of course, ate the whole fucking thing and immediately fell asleep. <laughs> I'm, I'm picturing, I know we reference like, car- like adult cartoons a lot. It's that like really early scene in Family Guy where Peter eats a year's worth of rations and then drinks water and then balloons to be like 15 people. Mm. Yeah, everyone get out. I have to poop. Now! <laughs> However, his little vacation was short-lived as he was soon ordered back to active duty. The doctors told his commander that if they were going to send him back out there, they might as well try and make some use of this abnormality. They uh, had him swallow a small box with a message inside it. Then, when he passed the box, the message was intact. So they determined that Tarar could be used to smuggle messages past enemy sentries, as they were unlikely to search the inside of his stomach. For sure. <sighs> like, the box is intact, but what about his box? Like, that's. That's got to be damaged by this point. I mean, I, I really, I don't want to think about what the situation was at the other end of that digestive tract. Yeah, it, it had to be just incredible. All right, now I have this mason chain. Uh, take this to the uh, the allies, please. On his uh, first mission, he was captured by enemy troops and under torture revealed the scheme. Uh, <laughs> Because of course, because of course he did. Um, how, how do you torture this guy? Just like, don't yeah. give him a snack. Yeah, he'd been in a room for five I mean, minutes probably. alone. <laughs> yeah, probably he hadn't eaten anything in ten minutes. He's like, I'll tell you everything. Just give me like six chickens. I, I've heard it's customary to you. You give me a cheeseburger and I talk. Uh, please give me the cheeseburger. And then fifteen other cheeseburgers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so. What the enemy commander decided to do was have him chained to a latrine for 30 hours until he passed the message. (laughs) Which, like we discussed before, it seems like this guy would be pretty well, like, metaphorically chained to a latrine pretty much constantly anyway, but who knows. Uh, When the enemy commander finally read the message, it contained no useful information, and the commander was so pissed off that he'd gone through all of this that he very nearly had Tarar hanged. <laughs> like, took him out there, the noose was around his neck, and at the last minute he's like, yeah, fuck. What, uh, what, 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 era, this. what era was this? This is very late 1700s. It's like, I'm, I'm surprised nobody had him hanged just for like being an affront to God. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is like, considering the kind of shit that could get you accused of being associated with Satan back then, the French were amazingly tolerant of this freak. <laughs> so, after this incident, he goes back to the hospital, and he was desperate for a cure. Like, he's like, I don't want to fucking live like this anymore. <laughs> like, I am in hell right now. Um yep. The doctors tried multiple different treatments, things like laudanum, tobacco pills, all kinds of stuff. 
nothing worked. Uh, Tarar was eventually, uh, he was caught on multiple occasions trying to eat the bodies in the hospital's morgue. Oh, come on, man. It's uncool. Oh, if you, <laughs> if you thought that was bad, here's what I the do. final straw was. Uh, eventually, a 14-month-old baby went missing from the hospital. No! While no one could prove it, the staff blamed Tarar and chased him from the hospital where he would never return. Mm. Like, he has literally become fat bastard. (laughs) (laughs) I thought my line was eating corpses. Eating eating live babies, literally, I think is my line now. (laughs) I mean, my line is considerably before either of those two things, but okay. My line before, like, I tap out on this show. Like, I, oh. my, my personal line is, like, way, like, 100 yards before that. But this show's line, yeah, my I think, personal is, line is, like, baby back ribs. <laughs> like, that's, it's way before baby. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's a shame that barbecue sauce wouldn't hit France for another 300 years. <laughs> Ketchup. Um, <laughs> so, Tarar, uh, Died of tuberculosis in 1798, and of course... Because the it's the 1700s, like, so fucking of course <laughs> he did. Yeah. And of course the doctors were like, we gotta crack this guy open, right? Like, we, we gotta see <laughs> we what's just going gotta on know. Yeah. It's fucking Capone's vault, let's do it. Yeah. Well, this was a lot more interesting than what was in Capone's vault. Um, for one thing, his body was uh, filled with pus... Uh, he also had an abnormally large esophagus, liver, and gallbladder. Uh, his stomach was reported to be just absolutely huge and covered in ulcers. Yeah. <laughs> we we still don't know what the nature of his condition was, and that mystery will probably remain a mystery for all of time, because we just don't have the information. It's like he had, like, giganticism, but without any of the outward appearance of it. Like, he... Like, Ate like Andre the Giant with like weird quirks, but like it seemed like he just like was like never satisfied, but still like a tiny human. Mm-hmm. So all that remains, I suppose, is my big question for the two of you. So eating contest, and this could be whatever kind of eating contest you want. This guy versus Charles Domery, who wins? So I'm going to go with Tarar because I think however much food you put in front of them, they're going to eat all of it. And so to, to one up each other and to win the contest, they're going to have to like make some moral decisions here. <laughs> and it seemed like Tarar had a, a more of a line or had a, had a further out line. The Charles Mary did some pretty kooky stuff. Uh, eating a baby. I don't remember that being part of it. <laughs> So, like, when it came down to one of them's going to be willing to eat the host and one of them's not, um, I think Tarar is going to be the first to, to, to jump on that. So, uh, I'm completely with Alex. Uh, the contest goes to a no decision because um, uh, everyone gets eaten except for this guy. Like, he's eating uh, yep. Domery, he's eating the host, he's eating the table where they were eating the food <laughs> on. He's, he's eating the whole set. I guess it is like like which one is going to eat the other one? That's probably the yeah. big question. That's where this is going. Yeah. So a cannibalism fight. That's gruesome. <laughs> <laughs> so my answer is no idea. I don't think it matters. Um, I just want to see it. I, but here's here's how I imagine this. Going. I imagine to really settle this, you would have to just like cook up. A 
enough food for like, an army and just keep bringing it to these guys until one dies at some point. And whoever doesn't die first is the winner. I mean, yeah, yeah there never really was a, be, a yeah, good yeah. test of there never was really which happens out of all of these guys' limits. Yeah, no, but which happens first? Like they run out of food and like they get full or the heat death of the universe. Like I, I feel like had like science been able to keep people alive for 400 years, they'd still be eating today. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Good answers, both of you. And uh, yeah, I thought we'd start this show off with a uh, just truly psychotic story. So I think that I think that was a good, uh, good lead off bit. All right, well, thank you for that, Cody. And uh, I'm up second this week. Um, and this is another uh, uh, festive, so to speak, topic, because the NFL draft is this week. Um, every year, what's just as fun as predicting the successes is predicting the busts. Um, yep. A number of really fun draft busts have happened over the years, many of them guys in and of themselves, from the insane and or roided out, <laughs> Such as Ryan Leaf, Brian Bosworth, yeah. Tony, Man- Tony Mandarich, <laughs> um, to the chronically lazy like Jamarcus Russell and Kelvin Benjamin, um, to just the all-around unfortunate such as Josh Gordon, Damon Arnett, and Henry Ruggs. In fact, you guys mm-hmm. should probably just do a Raiders-only segment here. <laughs> you know? Well, we talked about this last time John was on. What is the guy of the NFL uh, franchise world, and this is why I picked Oakland, <laughs> because it's shit definitely like the Raiders. Uh, there, so I'm starting to I'm starting to go through like all my old trading cards of various types um, that have just been like sitting in my in my closet back home for a long time. And I was going through some of my old football cards and found a, I found a Ray Carruth card. I'm like, I should probably <laughs> probably just pitch that one i think <laughs> yeah. i don't like I, I can't imagine it's worth any money and even if it is i wouldn't feel good about it anyway yeah, like i yeah. just i donated to some charity that's the only way i feel okay about myself oh boy i've got a signed aaron hernandez <laughs> that probably honestly knowing the patriots fan base that probably will yeah. sell for like there'd a be lot. a weird there'd be a weirdo who would pay mint for that yeah but a name that you rarely hear pop up is Russell Erksleben. And I'm not really sure why, because absolutely everything surrounding the decision to draft him itself to how it played out was a complete disaster. Um, maybe some of it was that he was drafted in 1979 and the draft was much less of an exact science back then. But even still, today, I will be making the case to you two that Russell Erksleben was the actual worst draft pick in NFL history. So Russ okay. was born in 1957 in Seguin, Texas, near San Antonio. Uh, Russ was a gifted athlete from an early age. Um, he started off playing basketball, baseball, and golf in addition to football. But what really made him realize that football was his future was making the national semifinals of the NFL punt, pass, and kick contest. Okay. Okay. Russ wound up make, uh, being the starting quarterback, kicker, and punter for the Seguin High School Matadors, which, first of all, great mascot. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. He was an okay quarterback, but what really caught the attention of college recruiters was his insane leg strength. Um, even as a high schooler, Russ was just kicking absolute piss missiles, both as a kicker and as a punter. 
Russ became one of the most highly recruited kickers in the country, and he could have gone just about anywhere he wanted. Um, in the end, he chose the local favorites and a powerhouse program of that era, the University of Texas. Sure. Yeah, in okay. most eras, probably a good pick. Yeah. Yeah. Russ yeah, you get a uh, scholarship to go play for Texas. Uh, you can play. Yeah. <laughs> Russ served as both kicker and punter for the Longhorns all four years of his tenure and certainly lived up to the expectations. To date, he's the only three-time All-American punter in NCAA history. Um, and as impressive as that is, his success, his success as a kicker was even more memorable. Most significantly, on October 1st, 1977, Russ set the NCAA record for the longest field goal at 67 yards. Jesus. Holy fuck. fuck. Where in Colorado that would have did been, this happen? Yeah, and the NFL record at that Justin point in Tucker time would just, have been... Yeah. Back then it was 62, I think, because... Uh, 63, uh, half, I think it was the... The guy with yeah, half a foot. Yeah, I think it was the guy... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the guy that played for the Saints with half a foot. Yeah, I think that was 63 is what they measured that at. So yeah, th this is like a record-breaking kick. Were kickers still kicking with the front of their toe and not soccer kicking by this point? Yeah, I, well, I was going to mention that. So uh, at uh, this point, it was kind of mixed. Um, like the... some There was some soccer style, but Russ was kicking straight-footed. Okay, that's what I figured. Which is fucking crazy to kick yeah. a ball that far six well, foot straight legged, you know. Well, it, probably like a fucking straight shot, no arc. Like, Yeah. Um, so his coach described the kick by saying that it sounded like a gunshot going off. <laughs> and that it probably had eight more yards to it on top of that. Jesus. Jesus. That record has never been topped, although it has been tied twice. The first was two weeks later by Arkansas's Steve Little playing against the Texas Longhorns. <laughs> wow. And then the second was I the following year. I think it's said, all right, kid, give it literally everything you have. Like, break a tendon or two if you need to. <laughs> but we're going we're gonna to run this down this kid's throat. It was tied again the next year in 1978 by Wichita State's Joe Williams uh, playing against our dad's law school alma mater, the Southern Illinois Salukis. Oh. So. Um, as, as we just mentioned, uh, Russ was kicking straight legged. It was the old school. Um, now I will say in fairness, the rules for field goals in college back then made things a bit easier. In particular, there wasn't a snap and a holder. They kicked field goals from a tee. Oh. Um, also if you missed a field goal, the other team didn't start from the spot of the play. I, I, I don't know where they started, but it was like a set you know, set yardage marker they started from. So teams were like more a touchback willing... or something. Something like that. So teams were more willing to try super long field goals since there was less risk. Yeah. Um, the NCAA record for longest field goal after they changed those rules is 65 yards, set in 1998. Would either of you like to guess who made that kick? He did play in the NFL, and he is a guy. Um, was it Garo Yepremian? No. <sighs> Damn. Uh Although, keep... Put a pin in that, Cody, because Gary Yepremian <laughs> does come up in this segment. So. <laughs> I figured, uh, yeah. I, I know it's not him, but just because I can't... 1998 was the year on that. Oh, okay. Oh, I, yeah, I thought we were still in the, like, 70s. No, th this is after they changed the rules, I said. I, I can't remember if he was playing, but fuck, he probably was. I'm just going to say Vinatieri, because I can't think of another kicker who may have been in that era. I know it's probably not Vinatieri. It's not Vinatieri, 
How about um, uh, the Rams, Jeff Wilkins? Wasn't Jeff Wilkins. The answer was uh, none other than Martin Gramatica. Oh. Oh, yeah. Okay. Definitely a guy. His brother, Bill, oh, yeah, uh, is yeah. in second place after, the, after the, the rule change was 63 yards in 2000. Which one of them tore his ACL celebrating? Was it Martin it was or Bill? Bill. Bill. Yeah. yeah, Bill. Martin played forever. Bill, like, ruined his career. Yeah. Like, destroyed his knee celebrating after and was, was never right. I don't know if he ever played again after that. Back in the era where one knee injury killed your whole career. There's going to be well, you're a kicker, almost every, like... That too. Almost every guy kicker makes an appearance in this segment at some point, except Mike Vanderjagt, <laughs> uh, who I'm bringing up now. Um, because if we're talking about guy kickers, he's certainly one of them. That so. was my second guess. <laughs> so Russ's massive leg took the NFL scouting community by storm. Um, heading into the 1979 draft, it would expected that he would be the first kicker off the board. But even with Russ seeming like a possible generational kicking talent, it was important for teams to remember that he was still a specialist. Like, kickers and punters, their roles are very limited, so even the best ones won't have the same impact on the game as really yeah. any other position. I mean, the world's best long snapper is still not getting drafted before the 10th round, probably. Right. And, I mean, if Bill Belichick had his way, that would change, but... The history of kickers and punters getting drafted high was very short. Um, the highest drafted kicker uh, had been Charlie Gogolak, sixth overall by Washington in 1966. Um, he and his brother Pete actually sure. innovated the uh, soccer-style kick that is standard today. Um, Pete, also a guy in himself, Pete Gogolak, his defection from the Buffalo Bills to the New York Giants in 1966 sparked the war between the AFL and the NFL that eventually led to the merger and the league how we know it and the Super Bowl as we know it. We we I touched briefly on him when I did uh, Bob Timberlake uh, yes. several episodes back. That's right. Mm -hmm. So our second Pete Gogolak reference. What were the <laughs> odds? Um, the highest drafted pure punter ever had been Ray Guy by the Raiders, a 23 overall in 1973. Um, I mean, the Raiders had a pretty complete roster. And Ray Guy, uh, most people agree, the greatest punter in the history of the world and a Hall of Famer. Um, and also like a He guy. was so good, he actually, he actually <laughs> justified. Yeah, his name was Guy, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's all to say, despite Russ being as highly thought of as a kicking prospect as the NFL had seen recently, it would take a truly odious, putrid team to draft him anywhere near the top. In steps are zeros of this story, the early New Orleans Saints. Ooh. Oh, boy. Um, I, I, I touched on this briefly all the way back in episode two when I talked about Bill Morrow. Um Back in the 70s, decades before breaking the hearts of Jack John's Indianapolis Colts in Super Bowl 44, um, the Saints were one of several newer NFL franchises who just absolutely stunk up the joint. Who the fuck kicks an onside kick on the start of the <laughs> third fucking quarter? God damn the Saints. In 1978, the Saints had at least shown some signs of life. Uh, they went 5-4 and four through the first part of the season before losing four in a row and eventually finishing 7-9. Seven, seven and nine. Their offense in particular was promising. Uh, the quarterback was Archie Manning. Okay. Um, and in the, the 1978 draft, they'd made a very nice pick at number three overall, selecting wide receiver Wes Chandler, um, who didn't have an, an amazing career overall, but had an excellent rookie season and was, was looking quite promising. Um, so in the 1978 draft, they had the 11th overall pick. There seemed to be two ways that they could approach that pick. 
One would be to bolster their defense, which had been their big weak point. Two, they could continue adding weapons for Archie Manning, who is surrounded by a bunch of solid players, but not a ton of elite talent. As you may suspect, they did not do either of those things. <laughs> I was really hoping the preamble on this guy just led to a completely different story. <laughs> but enough head about coach. Him. Head coach Steve Nolan and GM Steve Rosenblum scouted Russ Erksleben, and they thought to themselves, hey, this guy could be good for us at two positions. And apparently they just didn't think about it beyond that. <laughs> look, look, we've been thinking this all wrong. We've been drafting one player for one position. That's fucking dumb, okay? Hear me out. One guy, two positions. This guy's a Let's kicker and a punter, and his name sounds like a nonsense word that Jerry Lewis would yell out. That's all I need to say. <laughs> <laughs> when their pick rolled around at number 11 they passed on the chance to add to either their offense or their defense instead opting to select the big-legged kicker-punter combo Russ Erksleben the NFL community was shocked that they actually <laughs> did this and the pick was <laughs> widely panned by analysts and this, this is before like there was constant just microscope level coverage of the draft too yeah. Or or in an era before fans were at the draft live to just boo the shit out of you yeah. and something dumb. Yeah, but back then they just had it like some hotel. Yeah. Um like there was no um there was no Mike Mayock. There was no <laughs> fucking who's the who's the ESPN guy? Why can't I think of his name? You know who I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. I'm blanking too. The guy who just comes on the draft every year and just pisses and moans the whole time. Yeah. There was Yeah. Um so it was stupid for reasons even beyond just the obvious. Yeah. Um, in particular, the Saints had both a decent kicker and a decent punter on their <laughs> roster already. <laughs> their kicker was Rich Zaro, a Polish-born player, an extremely rare ambidextrous kicker, um, who led the NFL in field goal accuracy just a couple years prior. Um, well, yeah, you can. it doesn't matter what hash you're on. <laughs> you can get a good angle from wherever you're at. The Saints had been plagued by kicking issues in 1978, but not because Zaro did anything wrong. He just got hurt and missed most of the season. Um, their Look, punter, the, best, the best ability is availability. Checkmate. Their punter was Tom Blanchard, an eight-year veteran who'd been nothing but solid since coming to the Saints in 74. The Saints literally thought wasting their 11th overall pick on a position they didn't even need was worth it just to free up an extra roster spot. That's what they thought. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Zaro and Blanchard were both traded away, and fair or not, Russ Erksleben entered his NFL career with the uphill battle of winning over a Saints fan base that didn't want him to begin with. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just... Like, who let these idiots run a football team? Seriously. Like, this is obviously yeah. bad decision-making. Yeah. This is a 2 a.m. hammered-at-the-bar idea that you didn't think out through, but you said it out loud, and your buddy's like, fuck yeah, that's genius. Like, zero thought has gone into this after the original idea. Yeah. It, it's like, that's kind of the story of the early Saints. Like, Archie Manning was the only one in the building who actually knew anything about <laughs> football. And despite yeah. whatever he... he he begged and pleaded, like they they just continue to fuck up repeatedly. So, yeah, dude, I bet you could like hey. refrigerator. <laughs> Archie, Archie, look, you've been only throwing it like once per play. Why don't you throw it twice? Why don't we do that? Let's see how that works. 
So Russ's first opportunity takes a slug out of a bottle of whiskey. His first opportunity to win over the fans was week one of the 1979 season when the Saints hosted their rivals, the Atlanta Falcons. The Saints and Falcons were both awful in the 70s, but their rivalry had gotten quite heated and their games against each other were always entertaining. Mm -hmm. Um, No matter what else happened, respective fan bases of those teams cared a lot about those games. Their 1979 Week 1 bout was no different, um, as after 60 hard-fought minutes, they headed to overtime tied at 34. Midway through overtime, the Saints had the ball, but were stopped for a fourth down at their own 22 and had to punt. The calamity that followed was not Russ's fault at first. Oh, no. (laughs) At first, the problem was long snapper John Watson, who completely corked it and sent the snap four feet over Russ's head. Mm. All right. So Russ has put it in a pretty impossible situation Mm -hmm. here. As the punter, you have two priorities. One, keep the ball out of the end zone. Two, keep Atlanta from being able to advance the ball. Like, don't try to be a hero, because you're you're probably fucked no matter what, but at least the game won't be over. Your defense will have a chance. Okay? Yeah, get on that thing and fucking cover it. Unfortunately, what Russ does is he runs down the ball at the five-yard line, he goes full Garo Yepremian, and he attempts a half-ass chess pass. Oh, no. The result of this was quite similar to the infamous Gary Yepremian play, as the ball was snatched from the air by Falcons rookie James Mayberry, who took it into the end zone to give Atlanta a stunning road victory. <laughs> I, I, I can see where his head's at. He's like 22-23. Like it's his first NFL game. He, he wants to make a good impression. Like, if you, if you fall on it, you're conceding. But, like... I get it. I get it. But do better. Yeah. Like, it, it, just like, yeah, you're going to give Atlanta a first and goal from like the five, but yeah. like, here's the alternative. Like, you're not going to throw yeah. a good pass. You're a fucking, I know yeah. you used to play quarterback, but in the NFL, yeah. you're a punter. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. like opposite of what Bob Timberlake would do. Like, y- you can't do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so stunning of a victory was it that a near riot broke out between Saints and Falcons fans in the Superdome concourse after the game. Wow. This was about as bad of a debut as possible for a kicker or a punter. And it didn't get any better for Russ either as he tore his groin in the following week's practice and missed the rest of the 1979 season. Oh my god. So that was that was just it. <laughs> that was his Your only legacy game for this season year, is yeah. is this, yeah. Um, the Saints had traded away their previous kicker and punter, so they had to sign free agents off the street to fill in for the rest of the year at both positions. The kicker they signed, by the way, was, in an unbelievable twist of irony, no joke, Garo Yepremian. The Saints finished 8-8 and missed the playoffs by a mere one game. So not only (laughs) did he lose in this game, but arguably this one play kept them out of the playoffs. That's brutal. So that was 1979. But 1980 was a new dawn and a chance for Russ to rebound. Their first game came at home against the San Francisco 49ers. The Niners were on the way up, but they weren't quite ready to be the dynasty that they eventually became in the rest of the 80s. In 1979, they had gone 2-14, and and they hold that team holds the dubious distinction of being the only team in NFL history to lose 12 games in a season in which they held a lead. 
Oh. Oh my God. Yeah, it's brutal. That's how do you even do that? Yeah. There's really no, good I, offense, really bad defense. I'm honestly surprised the Lions haven't tied that record, honestly. Um New Orleans and San Francisco scrapped it out all game. Uh, and San Francisco took a 26-23 lead with less than two minutes left. However, their reputations as choke artists preceded them, and Archie Manning led the Saints down the field into field goal range where they stopped the clock with three seconds left. Mm. Jack John, I already see you getting very nervous. <laughs> I can see a three-point game, and I can see it not going well. This was Russ's chance at redemption. Oh, no. He took a deep breath. He entered the game to kick and proceeded to shank the fuck out of it, badly missing, and securing a second straight opening game loss at home for New Orleans. Mm. This uh, seemed to send the Saints into an absolute tailspin as they lost 13 more games in a row and finished 1980 with a putrid 1-15 record. Fuck me. Now this is Mike Vanderjack. Yeah. A few weeks into that season... Um, Russ came to his coach and asked to be relieved of his place-kicking duties. He said his confidence was totally shot and he couldn't adjust to not being able to kick off a tee. Which is another stupid aspect of this, drafting a college kicker that high, is like they're going to have to kick... The NFL didn't have the tee thing. Like, mm-hmm. they're going to have to kick in a completely new way. Um, the Saints obliged him and he finished his career as a kicker with a final mark of 4 of 8 field goals with a long of 38 yards. Wow. That is that is the number eleven overall the worst of all time. The Saints went on to draft his replacement in the fourth round, a young Danish fellow named Morton Anderson, one of the greatest kickers ever, (laughs) and a Hall of Mm -hmm. Famer. Yeah. A guy who played until he was very nearly fifty years old. Yeah. And held the the all time scoring record until recently when Adam Vinatieri broke it. Um Russ was at least able to salvage his career somewhat by transitioning to a full-time punter. Um, and he was actually pretty solid in that role for the next few years. But that really didn't curry him any favor with the fans. Mm-hmm. See, they were already pissed that the number 11 pick had been used on a potentially very good, they thought, kicker-punter combo. So the number 11 pick was you know, being used solely on a decent punter certainly was not what they wanted. This, too, came to an end in 1983, though. In the season finale of that year, the Saints narrowly held the final NFC playoff spot, but they needed to beat the Rams to hold on. Late in the game with a slim lead, Russ punted away to the Rams' electric return man, Henry Ellard. Ellard broke free, and and Russ, as the punter, had to be the safety. Oh, no. Once again, he was thrust into the position of being the hero or the zero. Russ went to tackle Ellard. Russ fell awkwardly, injuring himself in the process. And Ellard took it the rest of the way for a 72-yard touchdown. And his pants fell off and he farted and a bunch of girls saw it (laughs) and pointed and laughed. Yeah. (laughs) This was the deciding score of a 26-24 Rams victory that kept the Saints out of the playoffs once again. (laughs) As Russ was carted off the field the Saints faithful channeled their inner Philadelphians, adding literal insult to literal injury by booing the shit out of them. <laughs> I just quit. Fuck, that's rough. Like, that's the day I'm done playing football, if it's me. 
That's the day I start working on my alcoholism in earnest. <laughs> that was the final straw for the Saints, who figured they could probably find another decent punter who is less humiliating than Russ Erksleben. They cut the former number 11 overall pick, Russ, that offseason. Um, Russ would never play again. He had, A few years later, he attempted a comeback with the Lions, but got cut in the preseason. So... In 1984, in the ninth round, the Saints drafted his punting replacement, Brian Hansen, who made the Pro Bowl as a rookie and went on to a very respectable 15-year career. Yeah. Russ has since been voted by fans as, quote, the most hated player in Saints history. Fuck. <laughs> Just in case you were curious who the Saints could have taken in the 1979 draft. Yeah. So on defense, where they really needed to, to, to add some new blood... In the first two rounds, we saw uh, just a few picks after Russ. 13-year veteran and Pro Bowl linebacker Jerry Robinson was drafted by the Eagles. Five-time Pro, Bowl five Pro Bowl defensive tackle Fred Smurless was drafted by the Bills. Five-time Pro, five Pro Bowl defensive end Mark Gastineau was drafted by the Jets. Great player and great name. And Pro Bowl defensive tackle and eventual media personality Bob Golick was drafted by the Patriots. Okay. Bob Golick. So on offense, uh, five-time Pro Bowl offensive tackle Kent Hill was drafted by the Rams at pick 26. He certainly could have been helpful to Archie Manning. But perhaps most egregious of all, just two picks later at number 13 overall, the Chargers selected Hall of Famer and one of the greatest tight ends ever, Kellen no. Winslow. Oh. <laughs> I'll also add in the last pick of the Archie third round, the with Kellen was when the last pick of the, the third round was when the 49ers drafted Joe Montana. But in fairness, like everybody fucked that one up except yeah. the 49ers. So hard to single out the Saints. Well, and also, Saints didn't need a quarterback. So, yeah. And like they had a really good tight end, but like it's Kellen Winslow. Like they'd never, that was like a rare talent, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean that you could do a prototype, uh, Gronk and Hernandez thing where you're yeah. just using them both. So obviously the NFL didn't work out for us, but he at least still had the chance at a successful post football life. And fortunately for him, he already had a rather lucrative skill, a knack for understanding the financial world. He got involved in the foreign exchange trade and founded his own company called Austin Forex International. This went very well for him for the next 15 or so years, uh, perhaps too well, in fact, because in 1999, the IRS starts sniffing around. Yada, yada, yada. Russ gets sent to prison for seven years for securities fraud. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, he just, this guy just really couldn't catch a break. I mean, it just everything he touches becomes some massive fuck up. Okay, like the so Charlie fine. Brown of the former NFL world. Fine. All right. All right. You're right. Russ has failed both in the NFL and his post-NFL career. But he at least still has a chance to be a model of a reformed, productive citizen coming out of his incarceration. Oh, no. Unfortunately, that would also not come to pass, as in 2014, Rusk was convicted of fraud and money laundering because he was running a goddamn Ponzi scheme, <laughs> and he's sent to prison for another seven and a half years. Oh, I just imagine when this guy tries to make a sandwich, he puts the bread on the inside. I mean, he just <laughs> doesn't know how to do anything. He he reminds me of like there was an old like ESPN like commercial where like they wanted to tell you like how breaking news ESPN was, 
And it was like a player at home, like drinking his coffee and then like slips like on like a dog toy and like rolls an ankle and like the phone pops up and it's like in like alerts instantly. Like he's the guy who like rolls his ankle drinking his coffee in the morning. So Russ is now back out of prison and we haven't heard of any issues recently. So one can only hope maybe this time Russ will be able to build a career for himself that doesn't quickly become a catastrophe. I'm not optimistic given the track record here, but I suppose we will see. He's going to get involved in a blockchain scam. Oh, fuck. You're probably right. Yeah, letting this guy out like at the height of the crypto craze <laughs> was not a good idea. He's, mm-hmm. he's selling NFTs of, of dumb monkeys or some shit. Monkeys missing field goals. <laughs> now that sounds like a great children's book. Are we adding this to our line of here's a guy uh, properties? Monkeys with Google's. <laughs> Good. So that's uh, that's Russ Erksleben, and my big question to the two of you: um, Do you two agree with me in my assertion that Russ is the worst draft pick of all time? So I'm gonna say it's definitely possible, but I don't know that I'm a hundred percent sold, and here's why: because while this was a really stupid draft pick, this isn't. A guy who, uh, again, one of the reasons this pick was bad was that this is a guy who probably ultimately is not going to factor too much into how well your team does. Russ certainly tried to fuck everything up every chance he got. But if it was, say, a quarterback or a running back or a wide receiver that you're planning to really be a cornerstone of what your team does every play all season long and they fuck up... I think that's ultimately a bigger deal. So I'm still going to go with uh, uh, either Ryan Lee or Jamarcus Russell, probably as the the biggest actual bust. Yeah, when you, you, when you think about bust, you think about Ryan Lee. If you think about Jamarcus Russell, you think of like character issue people like Johnny Menzel or um, like any of those kind of people where it's like high profile dumb. But like you have to take into account for this how like out of nowhere it was taking a kicker in the first that high of a pick. Like that's got to add like some weight to it. So I, I'm going to say, yeah, he, he is the worst because his, like his wind share is like in the negatives. It seemed like anytime he was on the field, he was a liability and actively lost multiple games, keeping his team out of the playoffs twice. So I'm going to go. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, we talk about this in, in like sports analysis. It's, there's like good process versus bad process and good results versus bad results. Like something, you know, a, a decision that a team makes can be a good process, but go badly. Or like it can be a stupid idea and just dumb luck works out. Or like any combination of those things. This is what we call justice. This was a bad, <laughs> bad process and the results blew up in their face about as badly as possible. Yes. So, um, pretty predictable. Yeah, something, for you, something for you all to chew on. And if any of you have any particular favorite uh, draft bus, uh, send us our send it our way at here's a mailbox at gmail.com. Um, all right, so with two down, that just leaves one more guy this week. So we turn to Jack John. Who's your guy? Uh, it's no secret that the hosts here at Here's a Guy aren't too fond of organized religion, at least in its current form. Uh, too often individuals push their beliefs ahead of hard truths in order to establish themselves higher than others or to simply keep others down. I like to think that my gal this week is the opposite. 
someone who strongly believed in something and took her message to great ends, all while keeping human interests at the heart of her cause. So this week, I'm talking about Sister Megan Rice. Sister Megan Rice would go on to be one of the more influential activists in the modern era, and it's very easy to see why. Born in New York in 1930, Megan had an incredibly insightful family to look up to. Her father was the head of the obstetrics unit at Belleville, uh, Belleville Hospital. He would also lecture and even publish works in regards to health disparities that affected women of color. Her mother was also a driving force. Uh, she was a history professor who wrote her dissertation on Catholic attitudes towards slavery. So some pretty big influential people already in her house. If there was any doubt that her parents uh, were molding their child to be a selfless and caring one, Megan also had uh, her uncle to look up to, who had spent four months of his life in Nagasaki, Japan, after the atomic bombs had dropped. He was bringing aid to Japanese people post-World War II. So again, another huge, like, human rights, like, activist in her family immediately. Definitely an intellectual household. Like, yes. these are, she comes from smart people. Yes. This especially stuck with Megan, who had later called the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki the greatest shame in history. And it's easy to see why she got there. I mean, it's yeah, it's up, up there. there. To add even, even more influence, the Rice family was located near Columbia University, an area that had received very early funding for nuclear weapons research and what would eventually turn into the Manhattan Project. Yep. Robert so, Oppenheimer and all that. Yeah. The movie coming out about this for, uh, uh, just this summer, yeah. I think. So the research project that would lead to the creation of the first nuclear weapons is also just happening in her backyard. Even, even, even more so, the Rice family was friends with Dorothy Day, who in very short was a writer and activist who strongly influenced many Catholic views on the cost of nuclear weapons and how those costs directly came against those who were truly in need of shelter and food. The cost of nuclear war was essentially theft in her eyes from those in poverty, and this was immensely impressionable on young Catholics at the time, Megan Rice being chief among them. Yeah, it's, it's very strange how, on the issue of nuclear war, uh, a lot of Catholics who traditionally had taken pretty conservative views on most things really became fairly left-leaning in their, at, at least, views on things like foreign policy and, and war. Yeah. In my, like, very, very brief research on Dorothy Day, and I'm going to have to do afterwards, like, she was referred to as an anar like a Catholic anarchist. So I'm going to have to read more about her, definitely. Yeah, there, there's, like, it's not the majority view, but there is a, a thing in Catholicism called liberation theory that very much lends itself to this kind of thing. Um, and I mean, the, the Protestants have Quakerism, which also lends itself to this kind of thing. Unfortunately, those are just, like I said, not the majority <laughs> opinion. It would be nice if they were. Yeah. The, these weird offshoots of religion was like, hey, what if humanity actually? <laughs> but as a teenager, Megan called her shot at making a difference and entered the Society of the Holy Child of Jesus, starting her journey to become a nun. She would take her final vows in 1955, taking on the religious name Mother Frederick Mary, in part named after her parents, Father Frederick and Mother Madeline. He would uh, later achieve fame uh, while seen in a movie beating the shit out of John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd with the ruler. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the, the first Blues Brothers reference we've ever made on the show, oddly enough. 
that somehow or another, true. yeah. From here, Megan would earn degrees from Villanova and later Boston University, where she would earn her Master of Science degree. So, as as Cody alluded to, a very well-educated family, even getting more educated. She also taught elementary school-level children in places all along the East Coast, such as New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts. She would teach uh, for more than a decade before her mission work would finally be put to the test, with her being assigned to work in Nigeria. Sister Megan would show she was truly about that life, spending the next 40 years of hers in servitude to the people of West Africa, including the original Nigeria and later Ghana. During this time, she would work as a teacher and pastoral guide for the locals. And Sister Megan was clearly an advocate for serving people and their needs above all else. But it was also around this time that she was introduced to the idea that would make her famous. The plowshares and their movement. See, the main idea behind the plowshare movement is best summed up in the biblical verse that it inspired the name. They will beat their swords with plowshares. I'm sorry. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. The meaning behind this verse translates to the sometimes literal, destroy your weapons and give those to uh, in hunger and in need. For a split, split second, and not to, you know, not, not to throw a wrench into things. I thought you were going to say, and to quote from the Bible, and they beat their meat. <laughs> <laughs> as, I as long missed as that, that verse. Uh, as long as the meat was then used to serve hungry people, I'm sure that, you know, Sister Megan would be all for it. <laughs> Ethically, I, I don't know how to parse that. I'll just admit. <laughs> <laughs> that could be said about so much of this show. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're introducing somebody to here as a guy. Like, ethically, I have to tell you off the bat. <laughs> kind of, I find it ethically confusing. That's what we aim for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Upon returning to the U.S., Sister Megan hit the ground running in anti-nuclear arms protest. When asked why she took the cause so fiercely, she told people about her uncle and the upbringing that she had uh, teaching her about um, the atrocities of World War II. And she was actually making trips back to the U.S. in between her devotional work in Africa. She would come to the U.S., take part in a protest, oftentimes ending in her getting arrested and then released before heading back to Africa to do more work. During one of her trips back to the U.S., Sister Megan, alongside her mother, made a trip to Nevada to a nuclear arms protest. This specific protest was taking place in the Nevada desert. She was here for two reasons. One was the very obvious nuclear testing facility, but the other reason that pissed her and so many people off was that these tests were taking place on Native American lands. More yeah, specifically, just the West really, just, just an absolute shit show from start to finish, really. Yeah, and these were the Western uh, Shosho Nation sacred lands to be exact. This protest culminated in a 55-mile pilgrimage from the Atomic Testing Museum in Las Vegas, ending at the Nevada National Security Site. So she's actually putting, like, literal feet on the ground doing shit. During her acts of protest, Sister Megan would be arrested over 40 times, resulting in four different convictions for various what I can only imagine were bogus trumped-up charges. Of course, yeah. It's at this point that, and I shouldn't have to, but I'll remind you that Sister Megan is a fucking nun and a nice, sweet old lady by this time in her life. Uh, and it shouldn't have to be said, but I'll make sure it's clear. All of her protests are peaceful and protected under the Constitution as rightful protest. She's not doing anything like vandalous or like 
active criminal activity. She's just protesting and speaking her truths. Yeah, she's not saying Look, bomb I mean, hits for Jesus. But then it's a problem. <laughs> Look, I know that uh, you know having a nun arrested might seem extreme, but you don't understand. She was impeding the cause of violence. <laughs> like we right. we got to kill a bunch of people, and she was in our way. So that's what makes Can't it be okay. Having that. Why are you picking up those pitchforks? <laughs> Sister Megan was also beloved by her peers, especially those with her protests. She was even once referred to by someone at a protest as a Joan of Arc-like figure for how she handled herself during these. Did, uh, did Sister Megan also have a friend who was like a serial uh, killer of children? <laughs> Joan of Arc did. <laughs> yeah. Do, yeah. do I have to make the joke about priests here? Or... Can you imagine what Twitter would have been like in Joan of Arc's day? Christ. Like they'd never let, like, it'd be like the Elon Musk... Ghislaine Maxwell uh, picture. Yeah. <laughs> Justifiably so, I should add. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a lot of like a lot of screenshots with just this you question mark falling mm-hmm. after it. Mm-hmm. Uh, those around her said she would rele- uh, would lead miraculously. Uh, she also did something making sure no harm was caused from her side of the protest. When interviewed, she brought legitimacy to this claim when she said that if her group were attacked by guard dogs, that she wouldn't even try to harm the dogs. Going as far to say she wouldn't even raise her hands in self-defense. She's basically just been like, I'm here peacefully. Do what you must, but I'm still here. Yeah, that's, uh, again, this is one of those people, and they're not all like this, unfortunately, but this is one of those people who got into religion as a career out of a place of really wanting to be a genuine servant. Yes. Like, just trying to make the world better. That is a rare thing. It was also said that why, while handcuffed by police, she would often sing aloud this little light of mine. How the fuck are you arresting this nice old lady? <laughs> I wonder uh, if she ever switched it up and, uh, like, went with a, a different tune or something. Like, I wonder if she's uh, in the back of the cop car giving the boys in the paddy wagon a chorus of why don't we get drunk and screw. <laughs> now I want it, like, like kind of like Sister Act, but I want them to be singing Fuck the Police. Like, I just want that just one time. <laughs> uh, no protest would be bigger or more influential, more influential than her protest in 2012. It's at this point in time that Sister Megan Rice is 82 years old. Keep that in mind. <laughs> she's dedicated I love the young people <laughs> she's dedicated her entire life to causes that she and many others believe in and she's not done she's 82 but she's still fighting she along with two other plowshare movement activists Greg Boerty Obed age 58 and Michael Wally age 65 decide that they're going to go do something these three senior citizens pulled off one of the most controversial nuclear protests due to complete ineptitude by the U.S. government. The original plan was to sneak on to the grounds of the I-12 National Security Complex. This facility is yeah, a wing that, of the department. That's, that's a good idea. Yeah, uh, this facility is a wing of the Department of Energy National Nuclear Security, and is located in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Okay. Now. Luckily for us and our viewers, I have an official statement from the always trustworthy FBI on what exactly happened that night. (laughs) 
Oh, and I can't wait to hear those. If you'll allow me, I'd like to go into the very dark and twisted details of that night. Okay. The group of people who believe dinner starts at 4 p.m. had the kind of supplies that would make any criminal cower in fear. They packed bolt cutters to get inside the security fences, a flashlight and binoculars, cans of spray paint and a bucket of human blood, several hammers, uh, flowers, bread, and a Bible. I kind of wonder where they got the human blood. (laughs) They would approach the nuclear facility in the middle of the night on July 28th, 2012. These hardened criminals expertly cut out the hardened metal and wire fence in what would have had to have been military grade bolt cutters. They then covertly maneuvered through the trench of the first security circle, abusing the cover of shadow and night to hide behind the guard's watchful eye. They then reached a second fence, even more metal and more wire, and again, cut through its impenetrable wire with ease. Lastly, it was, the scourges a, it was, would... it was way it was even more metal. It had the Slayer logo uh, in the <laughs> in the chain links. There was uh, there was two uh, fingers giving the metal. <laughs> and, and lastly, the scourges would cut through the final two fences, now totaling four, where they would splash blood on the walls, destroy property, and begin to break down a nuclear silo. This is obviously bullshit. Yeah, I mean, it sounds pretty badass. Uh, I'm down with all of that, but... Yeah, um... I I, I really, really don't think... Like, look, you shouldn't ever listen to anything the feds tell you at face value, because they lie, like, a lot. But... I I just... This this is one of those that is one of their sillier lies, I think. Like, how did they expect anyone to buy this? Yeah. Now... While the FBI and their official release painted the issue as, as much more uh, with as much malice as possible, here's what actually happened. Three elderly protesters walked onto the ground with relative ease. They cut through several fences, this is true, without being caught, uh, but due to inept guards and broken security cameras, like there weren't guards at these fences and the cameras that were there weren't working. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. So they have the exact uh, same level of security as your average suburban house. Yes. The, uh, the sticker in the window that says is an old sticker. There's no security. <laughs> uh, they planned for the excursion to be brief and expected to be caught swiftly uh, from what they said. Uh, they weren't, um, though. With the free time by the inside of the grounds, they spray painted biblical verses on the wall through what I can only assume was fake blood, because I don't know where the fuck they would have got real blood, on one of the walls, and then they waited for two fucking hours to be caught. You know, I bet the FBI, uh, I bet it, what it actually was was sacramental wine, but the FBI's like, they threw the blood <laughs> of Christ on the walls. <laughs> they would sing songs, and they did hit hammers against the side, but what I can only assume was symbolic protest. Um, yeah, mostly because, just to keep the beat, probably. Yeah. Um, but again, I want to reiterate, um, they were uh, at the United States' largest stockpile of weapons-grade uranium alone for two fucking hours. Yeah. Uh, FBI probably had uh, <laughs> reasonable suspicion that it would be very bad if the public found out about this. Yeah. Uh, they were such a non-threat that when they were caught... Uh, to show they really meant no harm, they offered the guard bread. 
they literally offered to break bread with their enemy in signs of like, hey, we're not we're not going to do anything. Here's some fucking bread. I wish more interactions ended that way. <laughs> and and I use really dramatic like read in for the FBI's report, but I'm going to read a couple of the literal lines. Um, that the people who had broken in had the intent to interfere with national defense. Depredation uh-huh. against the United States. And that those who did this would be vigorously prosecuted. That uh, is will, that is Fed speak, if I've ever heard it. Yeah, I, I that's the remind, only way the feds know how to prosecute is vigorously. I will again remind you that the mean age of the mean age of these three people is sixty six years old. <laughs> Brought down by the fact that uh, Sister Megan is in her eighties and the other two people are close to sixty. Um, now. Sister Megan and her co-protesters would be sentenced to either 35 months or 62 months, depending on the individual. Uh, but they were going to be uh, sent to federal prison and ordered to pay $53,000 in restitution damages to the security systems and defacing on the premises. Which I can only imagine was them having to pay for a new security system because one didn't exist already. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I-, I imagine that was pretty easy to replace. <laughs> yeah. If, non-functional if take, equipment's pretty cheap, turns out. Yeah. If 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 they did fifty like thousand dollars in damages with spray paint and some blood, you have a shit building. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were charged with misdemeanor trespassing, felony destruction and depredation of government property, and felony sabotage. Um, these I were think eventually that was a little far-fetched. They were eventually lessened to the violating of peacetime provision uh, of the Sabotage Act and criminal damages exceeding $1,000 on government property. So they brought them down a little bit. Uh, during, her testimony, yeah, during her testimony, though, Sister Megan was almost emboldened and stood in her beliefs, uh, saying on the stand that her only regret is that she hadn't done this stunt 70 years earlier. <laughs> um. When they argued that Sister Megan and her friends uh, broke in, they were like, no, they didn't break in. We actually, they walked in with ease because there was nothing to break into. Like, they cut a fence, but that's hardly breaking Yeah, I, I guess cutting a fence, I think that does meet the legal definition yeah. of breaking into something, but it, it's pretty yeah. pretty pernicious to use the language yeah. like they, you know, use burglar's tools and pick yeah. the lock or smash through a door. Yeah. That was basically like the defense. It was like you you can't call this what you're calling it. There's no security here. Like this is your fault. Mm-hmm. Uh, the federal prosecutors didn't think on the same level. Uh, they argued that Sister Megan was a habitual offender, and if released, she would break the law again, given a chance. And Sister Megan was basically just like, "Yeah, we can't allow you to be out here telling us it's bad to blow people up with atomic bombs." That's that's kind of the whole thing with like. Um, and this this is like what under underlied what Rosa Parks did as well, and the whole civil rights movement. Like, if you're an activist and your whole point is challenging unjust laws, yeah, you're gonna keep breaking the law because the whole point is like <laughs> yeah. you should be breaking these laws. They shouldn't exist in the first place. Yeah. Again, this this nun was arrested over forty times. Yeah. No, that's that's actually valid, and she doesn't care. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the defense then argued that Sister Megan was a fucking nun and that she only acted in devotion to her beliefs. Uh, this was struck down by the judge almost immediately, countered that her beliefs were not a literal get-out-of-jail part. I mean, that's fair. <laughs> but what about the nun part? 
it seems like that should have some bearing. Yeah. No. Uh, Sister Megan was ultimately sentenced to two, while Greg and Michael would each get five years, all in federal prison. Me- I'm sorry, and you Me- cut out. Megan got what? Uh, yeah, so uh, Megan was sentenced to three years, while Greg and Michael would each get five years, both in- or all in federal prison. I see. I mentioned that Sister Megan had her sentence. Re- um, well, the judge, that, the judge that oversaw the overturning uh, in a case wrote in his opinion, any rational court could conclude that three peace activists couldn't have seriously harmed the, nas- uh, the national defense and even pointed out in like a level of exper- uh, exasperation uh, saying, and how would they have done this with a loaf of bread? <laughs> Basically being like, you drop the hammer on three fucking church activists. What are you doing? Yeah. In a true mark of her cause, Sister Megan stated that she hoped she was going to die in prison. She said during her sentencing, to remain in prison for the rest of my life would have been the greatest honor you could give me. Good Lord would be better to die in prison for the anti-nuclear cause. Basically saying, like, yeah, I'm, I'm here for this. <laughs> oh, yeah, lady. Yeah. She was even brought in later during, like, congressional hearings and basically was like praised by the different like uh congressmen there basically saying thank you for showing how shit this security is uh, oh, after yeah. being released from prison like they were just like hey you actually did really good here thank you for showing us that anyone who with, with malice could have done some serious damage by breaking through four fences i love how their takeaway was yeah we need to step up security not we need to stop building uh <sighs> nuclear weapons and stockpiling plutonium <laughs> Yeah, at, at least at, at least they kind of like basically gave her a platform to be like, hey, this person who did this was kind of yeah. good. The, Maybe the government, the government's not going to fully admit that they're wrong, but they at least let that person have a voice for a second. At the end of it all, Sister Megan Rice was a woman who fought hard fairly for what she believed in. She didn't use her religious beliefs to undercut people just simply trying to exist, but rather spread love through her actions and constantly walked around uh, those with her. She walked right up to the ever-growing military complex of the United States, told her to cut the shit, and then offered it bread. Sister Megan would get it her way in the end, a lifetime of advocacy published in places like the New York Times, NPR, the Washington Post, local and national news syndicates alike, all touting her anti-nuclear arms message. Sister Megan even had everyone talking about uh, after her death, proving that her message stood strong even after her life, uh, when unfortunately she would die of heart failure at the age of 91 in 2021. But that's the story of Sister Megan, uh, which leads me to my big question. She was 82 when she pulled her big stunt alongside a 65-year-old and a 50 what are the three of us going to do in our 60s? I mean, I think you're looking at it, man. Because uh, let's be honest, none of us are ever going to be able to retire. And in some <laughs> yeah. way, shape, or form, I would almost guarantee you that by the time we're in our 60s, we're going to still be dicking around and riffing on stuff. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't see any of us being uh, major league activists. I... I would hope that the uh, three of us are billionaires after this uh, podcast makes us uh, fabulously wealthy. So, uh, yeah, we'll we'll see how that goes. But I, I think we're doing Here's a Guy in our 60s. I think that's what we're doing. I like that. To dovetail off that, I think that will finally be when we open 
as we've been discussing for a long time. The Here's a Guy Museum. Um, we're going to a nice little storefront property, open it up. And then on uh, day one, a uh, um, very upset descendant of uh, Giuseppe Zangara is going to drive their car straight into the uh, straight into the museum, Jay Ward style, and uh, pin us against the wall. See, I, I think uh, what they're going to do is they're going to try and shoot us, but they're not going to be able to get over the uh, tall lady in front of them. Yeah. <laughs> a real shame that his descendants never got any. <laughs> well, good answers, both of you. I I think it's it's going to be like one of those like scenes where we're retirement three like rockers out in the front and we're just making dick jokes at each other like nothing we, more than we're that, just nothing less we're just a stupid murder uh mermaid man and barnacle boy type scenario <laughs> absolutely not out of the question not out of the question no not even a little yeah no that's that's spot on all right. Well, thank you for that, Jack John. Thanks uh, uh, to everybody for their topics. And thanks to everybody out there for tuning in. Uh, uh, another fun episode of Here's a Guy in the Books. So um, let's do what we do. Let's wrap this thing up. Uh, let's go around the horn and hawk our shit. Cody, where can the people find you? Uh, well, most importantly, you can find me every week here on Here's a Guy on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Uh, you can find me on... Uh, Twitter, I am at sonofgravy42069, and at some point in, we hope, the relatively near future, uh, you'll be able to catch the three of us, plus our friends Pookie and Kelsey, on a little Twitch channel where we uh, play D&D and have a great time. It's twitch.tv slash here's an adventure. All right, where can the people find you, Jack John? Uh, people can find me on Twitter at papa underscore Jack John. Find me on my personal Twitch channel at Papa Jack John. And new new this week find us on instagram at here's a guy pod uh we're going to be posting uh pictures of our guys and gals and all the the wacky shit that's related to that so check that's us right. out on a new platform and for me you can find me on twitter at turpin for prez that's uh turpin the number four prez follow the uh podcast account as well at, at here's a guy pod on twitter um and as mentioned a couple times in the show we have a mailbox as well it's here's a mailbox at gmail.com um all right, so thank you all for being here. Um, boy, let's let's see. How should we put a bow on this? Oh, oh Cody, do you have a tagline for us? I do. A very Sounds important good. tagline. Good. I like when they're important. Um, all right, well, thank you all for being here. Hope to have you again with us next week. And Cody, hit us with that tagline, please. There's no good reason to ever eat a baby. There just isn't. <laughs> Bye, daddies. <laughs> <laughs>